We're going to be in Judges 19 this morning, and we're going to read all the way down through uh, chapter 20, verse 7. Uh, This morning we're moving into what is the second appendix of the book of Judges, and here we will discover a story for which uh, we are very unprepared. But not y'all, you're read this week, right? So you're ready for what's coming. It's a dark and tragic story. It's repulsive in many of the details that convey to us some of the evil and wickedness that was going on in Israel. Most of these things have come as a direct result of Israel's refusal to acknowledge Yahweh, that's the covenant name for God, to acknowledge God as their king. The nation has now lacking in a theological reason for not sinking to the ethical level of the Canaanites at a personal, tribal, and national level. Because there is no king, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And as a result, moral anarchy, social disintegration, and unthinkable evil characterize the days. This story this morning should lead us to mourning over our sin. It should cause us to yearn for a righteous Savior King that rescues men from their desperate situation. I say that it should lead us to mourning over our sin this morning because Israel shows us, to an extent, ourselves. Today's text will be proof positive for what Paul writes in the first few chapters of Romans. That is, the obviously godless pagan world is lost in sin, and the morally, externally good person is also lost in sin. Paul's words that there is no one righteous, not even one, all have turned away, they have together become worthless, will ring true. No one in this story, no one in this world, no one in this room is righteous. We all, like Israel, need a Savior King. That's the one thing I want you to grab a hold of this morning is we all need a Savior King. We're going to work through the text in four parts. The first 15 verses, we'll see hospitality. And then in verses 16 through 23, we'll see a rising hostility. Verses 24 uh, through 20, verse 7, will show us horror. And then we'll conclude our time together by talking about hope. Before we do all that, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning uh, in the midst of a very difficult text. It is your word, though, Lord, and we know that your word is useful to us for correcting, rebuking, teaching, for training and godliness. And so we ask that you would help us to see what it is you have for us in this text. That you would speak kindly to us, that you would speak peace in our hearts, and that you would use it to make yourself look beautiful, look glorious. That you would use this text to help us fall more deeply in love with you. For you are truly lovely. And we know that that beauty can be revealed even in a text that is seemingly unlovely. So, Lord, guide us this morning. Illuminate this text and help it to change our very lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let's start with hospitality in verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. We've already been given fair warning at this point that things aren't going to be so good because there's no king in the land and everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. They're doing what's true for them. And uh, we're told further that things aren't going to be going so well because we run into a second Levite. And this Levite is going to be just as bad as the one from the previous chapter, if you remember last week. We're tipped off that he's not so great a Levite either by uh, being introduced to his concubine. A concubine at this time is a a sort of second-class wife and served primarily as an object of sexual gratification. And so the text will identify this concubine, uh, will identify the Levite of this, the Levite who is the husband of this concubine. There it is. Uh, They're going to identify the husband as both husband and master because of the way that he views her and the way that concubines were treated at this time. I think it's important as we work through this narrative that God makes quite clear in Genesis 2 that marriage is to be between one man and one woman and for one lifetime. And so the subsequent sin of believers following cultural pressures and having multiple wives and concubines and things like that throughout Scripture do not negate God's design. As the Bible shows, any alteration to God's design for marriage ends poorly from Abraham through Jacob down to Solomon. The practice of polygamy always brings heartache. It always brings pain without exception. And so it's ominous here that the Levite, who is supposed to be set apart as holy, set apart for the priesthood, is instead looking a lot more like pagan culture and has taken to himself a concubine. And this concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem and Judah. And she was there for some four months. And there's a lot of speculation here why she leaves uh, the Levite. We're not really sure. And uh, the text literally says that she played the harlot. Some commentators suggest that this is just a way of saying she got angry with him and left him. And so as a result of her leaving him, it was able to be said of her that she was adulterous and that she had played the harlot. Others think that she actually committed adultery, and I'm not sure which it is. The point here seems to be that the Levite and his concubine, they're not seeing eye to eye, and she's taking off to hang out with her dad for a little while. Verse 3, Then her husband, that's the Levite, arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. Notice it took him four months to figure out that he wanted to speak kindly to her and bring him back. Uh, it takes me some time to like, let Chelsea know that she was right about a situation, but not four months. I mean, that's, a, that's some time now. So he's going he's gonna to sweet talk her, and he takes with him a couple of donkeys and his servant. And uh, she brings him into her father's house. And uh, when her father sees him, he came with joy to meet him. The Levite's father-in-law and concubine are really excited that he's there. Why, we might ask? I think we can only speculate, but perhaps they are excited about the reconciliation between husband and wife that's about to take place. Or, uh, as Keller suggests, if the woman did indeed play the harlot, the penalties for both adultery and leaving an owner were severe, including the death and maybe family disgrace. The father may be ensuring that the Levite doesn't press charges. 
I'm not sure which it is. And because we're not privy to the thoughts and intentions of the father-in-law, I think we have to take them at face value and think about what the author is intending to communicate to us through this father-in-law. And what I think that is, is great hospitality. What true hospitality looks like in order to contrast it with what follows in the narrative. I mean, this guy's hospitality is out of this world. It goes above and beyond. Even, even the standards that are set by Abraham in Genesis 18, this is true hospitality. And hospitality is one of those things that is supposed to mark us as Christians. It's supposed to mark the people of God, but often gets really, really overlooked as kind of minor. I think it's important. Hospitality, simply put, is just kindness to those outside of your normal circle of friends. In the Greek, the word literally means love of strangers. So I want you to think about that as we read through the text. Do I love strangers? Actually, do I even love the people that are in my circle of friends well? Am I hospitable? Do I provide a place for them to come to table with me and eat and have fellowship? Am I hospitable? In fact, I'll just give you an application here before we continue on. Maybe you have somebody over to your house for dinner this week that's in this particular church that you don't know that well. Get to know them better. We should be a people that does life together. We should know each other very, very well. Uh, when Skylar Anderson was here uh, in March, one of the things he said is that the, the church should be the party people. We should be the partiers. We should be celebrating. We should be getting together and eating together and having a good time. That, that's what should mark us is celebration and joy. And I hope that we would host one another more. And the community around us might see that and we might get known as the party people. I think that would be very cool. The verses that follow, verses 5 through 10, outline this father-in-law being a near-perfect host. He's celebrating this reconciliation between his daughter and the Levite. He's welcomed the Levite with arms wide open into his home. They've been eating and drinking. There's just all kinds of merriment going on. It's a good time. I mean, the the Levite wasn't planning on staying that long, but he ends up getting uh, roped into staying five days. I mean, that's with his in-laws. So, you know, this guy must be pretty hospitable. But at the end of five days, uh, he can't take his in-laws anymore. He's ready to get on. It's the afternoon. He says, I'm not staying with you. I'm going to move on. He's finished spending time. So the Levite and those traveling with him begin their journey home. And after a little while, it becomes very clear that they're not going to make it all the way home. They left a little too late for that. And so they need to stop somewhere for the night. And the Levite's servant suggests, hey, uh, Jebus, or Jerusalem, is not that far from us. Let's stop there. And Levi says, we're not, we're not stopping there. Because uh, at this time, it's called Jebus because the Israelites don't quite own that land. They were supposed to take it, but they didn't. And so it's still Canaanite territory. And the Levite's saying, look, if we stay in Jebus, it's not going to be safe for us there because, well, they're not fellow Israelites. And so we should press forward to Gibeah. They're the Benjamites. They own that place. They'll treat us real nice. Uh, They're our brothers, you know, 12 tribes, the whole deal. So they keep on going forward. But once they get to Gibeah, they don't find a warm welcome. They don't find the same type of hospitality that they found with the father-in-law. In fact, they find quite the opposite. They find hostility. Seems as if the Levite and his group are going to have to actually spend the night in the town square. 
At this time, you didn't really have hotels where you called ahead and made arrangements. Like, they're not staying at the Hampton. It's not that they failed to plan. But people would simply take you into their homes and host you. They loved strangers. They would take you in. They'd feed you, take good care of you. And so that's kind of what they expected to happen. But they showed up, and everybody's pretending, like, not to see them because they don't want to host them. And so they're going to have to stay in this town square And then all of a sudden, this sojourner, it's a guy who's not native to the land. He's just moved there from somewhere else. He's coming in from a a long day of work, I suspect. He's older, and he says to them in verse 20, Peace be to you. I'll take care of all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. There's a subtext here. Don't miss it. He's kind of saying, if you stay in the square, something bad is going to happen to you. It's almost as if to say, the square is not a safe place to be at night. And verse 22 will show us why. As they're making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him, that is, have sex with him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. So the worthless men have surrounded the house and they've demanded that the Levite be brought out to them so that they might rape him. The old man who is their host quickly points out that this is, first of all, vile. And that secondly, as their host, he's responsible for their safety. Don't do this wicked thing. Then in order to protect his honor as a host... And we think he's going to be a good guy, but then he reveals himself not so much. To protect his honor as a host, he does something despicable. Verse 24, Behold, he says to the men, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do whatever seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. My first question is, why not offer something else? Like, hey, I'll give you a bottle of wine, leave us alone, maybe some cheese. Why not offer another solution instead of jumping straight to take my daughter and take his wife? I think it's because he, like the Levite, and like many in the Canaanite culture during this time, thinks of women as property, as objects rather than people. See, in the view of the surrounding culture, women were less valuable and more expendable than men. It's heartbreaking that this cultural view belonged to people of Israel rather than the biblical worldview that includes the creation principle of God that men and women are both equally made in God's image and both equally and intrinsically valuable though they have different roles. You know, one is not superior to the other. This biblical worldview would affirm the infinite value of each and every human life. But sadly, this host and the Levite himself do not have this biblical worldview. But they're more concerned in doing what is right in their own eyes. And so the host does what is right in his own eyes, and he offers to bring out his young daughter and the Levite's concubine, so that the mob can humiliate and abuse them by doing whatever is good in their eyes. I think there's some irony here that reveals in a world in which the individual makes himself the measure of all things, the individual eventually counts for nothing. 
The old man believes that he can preserve his honor by throwing his daughter and another woman's wife out like meat to dogs. These worthless men wait outside to take what they want because their moral compass allows it. It's how they express themselves sexually after all. They were born this way. And so uh, this action must be right because it's true for them. Subjective truth is ever-changing and it's worthless. It's no truth. Only God can be the measure of all things. Only His infinite perfections can serve as the standard for truth, for what is good and what is holy. I think Keller wisely writes to us here on this particular section. He says, this is a terrible incident that we should be very cautious of. We should be very cautious of drawing neat lines between it and our own times. But perhaps it is worth asking ourselves these questions. If we are Christian men, are there ways in which we listen to our culture about how we should view, treat, or look at women? In what ways are we in danger of treating women as property, as things? I mean, there's a reason why so many people bristle at the complementarian view of marriage. It's because men have abused their role of headship and that they've failed to live out Ephesians 5, right? It says, be imitators of God. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Husbands are to love their wives fiercely, fiercely enough to die for them. They're to love them in light of who Jesus is making them and by God's grace, play a part in helping them to become and practice what God's declared them to be. Play a part in helping them step into that beautiful dress that God has given to them. That dress of righteousness, of spotlessness. They're to sanctify them, washing them with the water of the word. Husbands, love your wives. Do this by dying for her daily. Serve her. This might come as news to some of y'all, but all women are different, right? And so they all need, like, served in different ways. They, they need different things. And so the exhortation for us is to study our wives, to learn them so that we know how to best serve them and care for them so that we might love them like Jesus. Wives, likewise, get to know your husbands. Encourage them in this venture by living out God's call in your own life. Outdo one another in love. Outdo one another in serving one another. Be Jesus to one another. Singles, you're, you're not off the hook here if you're unmarried. Your job also in this time of singleness is to learn how to love others well. It serves as a time for you to uh, separate yourself from that selfishness that's within you. And that's easier said than done. I mean, four years into marriage, I'm still one of the most selfish people I know. 
Uh, but marriage requires us to deny ourselves and think about others. And so what you can do with singles, I think, in this end of war is get yourself some roommates and love them. Serve them really well. Do things for them. Take out the trash. Make dinner. Do the dishes. Same kind of things that happen in married households. But just train yourself to be a good servant, to be a good spouse. Friends, all of us would do well to just do verse 1 of Ephesians 5, to imitate God so that we don't misrepresent Him to one another or to the lost and dying world around us. The scene here in Judges is ugly. The author who is recording this history, remember it actually happened, utilizes language so that it mirrors and points us to another portion of Scripture. Perhaps you remember it. It's all the way back in Genesis 19 when two angels show up and they visit Lot. There's a lot of similar things going on there. And we're supposed to have this kind of deja vu in reading Judges 19. You know, just at Lot's house is surrounded by angry men. They're beating on the door and they want to have sex with these angels inside. Now, in Lot's case, the angels were angels and said so they just struck the guys with blindness and it was all good. That Nothing bad happened except for Sodom and Gomorrah went down after that. But that's a different part of the story. But here the women have no such powers at their disposal. They're going to be thrown out as property. Easily disposed of. I think the similarity between the accounts is meant to send clear echoes of the depravity at Sodom and Gomorrah through our ears. See, Sodom is the great Old Testament example of rebellion against God that rightly brings upon itself the judgment of God. Message is obvious. Here are the people of God who have been given the covenants of Abraham and of Moses and the law and the prophets. They've been given the tabernacle and the temple and the exodus. They've even had more recently judges raised up to deliver them. You know, guys ripping lions in half. Yet despite all of this, they're no better than the godless nations who had received none of these blessings. God's people are no better than Sodom. Israel, God's people, is as sinful as Sodom. Yet the picture grows dimmer still. As we run into the horror. Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him. So the men seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Instead of going out to look for his concubine, the man intends to continue on his way. And so he he goes to sleep in the evening. And then as he readies to take off on the day's journey in the morning, he's startled when he steps outside and he trips over a woman lying in the doorway with her hands on the threshold. 
This image is concretized by the reference to the hands, right? It's just um, emblazoned in our minds. She's reaching out for the door. She's reaching for the protection of her husband. She's reaching for the security of the host's home. Reaching, and all she can grab hold of is death. She's too weak to even open the door on her own or, or even knock. And as if nothing unusual has occurred, the Levite commands her, get up, let's go. The narrator's report of her response is deafening. Verse 28, there was no answer. Then he put her on a donkey. The man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces. And sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel. Speak. Why does the Levite cut up and send his concubine's body around Israel? I think it's because he wants vengeance on the men of Gibeah. But I don't think it's vengeance for the treatment of his concubine. After all, he did send her out to them. But for the loss of his perceived property. The narrator's comment here that such a thing has never happened or been seen is ambiguous on purpose. In order to point out the despicable actions of both the men of Gibeah and the despicable actions of the Levite. You see, because the Levite's account of what happened is going to be remarkably self-serving. He's going to spin it in a way that makes him look not like such a bad guy. Verses uh, 20, I'm sorry, chapter 20 in the first seven verses, he, he edits it pretty well. He, he, it's well edited to hide any wrongdoing on his part. He underlines where the atrocity happens and he claims that the men of Gibeah, rather than the reality of some wicked men, were intending to kill me when in fact they were intending to rape him. He then completely omits to mention that he callously sacrificed his concubine rather than fighting to protect her, reporting only that they raped her. No one hearing his account would have suspected that he contributed to the death of the girl. I think we do the same thing. Edit truth. Spin it in a particular direction so that we come out looking pretty good. Put ourselves in the best light. Overlook our sins while pointing out the sins of others. The point is that while the men of Gibeah are certainly villains and overtly sinful, the Levite who's supposed to be set apart to holiness, the good guy, his moral performance is no better. He's just as much a villain. And we, like the men of Gibeah and like the Levite, are just as villainous, just as self-obsessed. We are, by our nature, sinners, totally depraved, morally bankrupt, evil. Let's not edit the truth. Let's tell the truth about ourselves and about our sin. 
Judges 19 is proof positive for what Paul writes in the first few chapters of Romans. That the obviously godless pagan person is lost in sin. And that the morally, externally good person is lost in sin. His words that there is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away and all have together become worthless, ring true. No one in this story, no one in the world, no one in this room is righteous. Happy Father's Day. I'm just kidding. This is a hard section of Scripture. Story makes us squirm a little bit. I think that's what the author wants us to do. I think he wants to prompt us towards disgust with this type of sin. And not only this type of sin, but every type of sin, our sin. He wants us to mourn for Israel and for ourselves because no one is righteous and everyone lives as if there is no king. The text is to show us that we need a king who will rescue us, who will rule us, who will change us. I think before we can appreciate the good news of the gospel, so we first have to grasp that we are more wicked than we ever dared dream. That indeed, we are capable of the type of evil that is in Judges 19. The knowledge of our need for a rescue It enables us to see the beauty of the cross. That in Jesus, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared dream. This is what makes the gospel so sweet. Is that we deserve death. Yet he gives us life. Judges 19 is horrific. And it makes our hearts sink. But there's a glory in this text as well. Jared Wilson writes in his book, Gospel Deeps. Judges 19, 22 through 30 shows us that the Bible is honest. It's realistic about the depravity of man when left to his own devices. Further, the punch of the narrative is that what was thought only to happen among the godless is now happening in the heartland of Israel at the hands of God's people. Judges 19 drives the guilt of sin home and places it in every human heart. Judges 19 is honest. It's not putting a gloss or a veneer on what men are capable of, which can clearly be seen on the evening news. And while we should be disgusted by the imagery, we should also commend the Bible's brutal honesty. But there is a gospel spring beneath this text. You see, when there is no king in Israel, men betray their women. A woman is unprotected and given over to enemies to have their way with her. And then she is made an example of in a murderous way. Murderous way to the 12 tribes and to the nations that surround. But when Jesus is king over Israel, he protects his bride. When Jesus is king, he won't give her over to the enemy to have his way with her. No, when Jesus is king, he leaves the house himself for us. When Jesus is king, he offers his own body going in his bride's stead to be torn apart for the 12 tribes of Israel and for us. Instead of giving us up in some evil bargain, he gives himself up. And his battered body is the sign to his people that he won't sell them out. 
Jesus suffers this kind of sin and absorbing the wrath for this kind of sin in order to forgive this kind of sin. He who was perfect and knew no sin took our sin and became a curse for us so that we could take his righteousness, forsake sin, and follow him in rising from the grave to live forever with God. Paul's words, there is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. They have together become worthless, ring true. No one in this story, no one in this world, no one in this room is righteous apart from Christ. We all, like Israel, need a Savior King who is the righteous one. Friends, the King has come. Come to him this morning. If those helping to distribute the bread and the cup for communion this morning would come forward at this time.